9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host, and I'm coming to you today from New York City, where it is really, really, really hot out because we are in the last few days of summer. Uh, Joining me from, I think, Washington, (laughs) D.C., is Ed Luce. Where are you, Ed? Hello, I'm, I'm well, thank you. And where are you? <laughs> oh, I thought you said, how are you? I thought you were being polite for a change, David. Yeah, I understand. Where am Why I? did you think um, that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, sorry, Washington. Did I, I, I had a slip of the tongue. Uh, yes, well, and how are you, Ed? Um, I have never been better. Wow, that's pretty good. And joining us, as you could hear there for a second, <laughs> from maybe London, England? I am indeed in London, where is, it was pouring, pelting rain today in late August. Yeah, it was pouring, pelting rain here yesterday. In fact, we went to see my my older daughter writes for a television show here called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. And a great show. It's a great show, and um, and, I, and she invited us to go see it. And of course, the moment we stepped out the door to go see it, the skies opened up and <laughs> rain poured down. But we were not daunted, and it was a great show. Um, what was the topic? The main topic was on medical research discrimination against women and people of color. Uh, you know, so you know things like how they would do studies of uh, breast cancer therapies, but they wouldn't actually use women in the studies. Right. Uh, Right. Or imagine that people whose bodies are different might have different reactions. Right. Well, the the punchline of the whole of the thing was that, you know, doctors, doctors thought that women's hormones and periods and things were, you know, complicating matters in terms of their data. (laughs) That's right. right. <laughs> As opposed to a, a interference. Little, yeah, exactly. But it was no, it was, it was great. And um, uh, but the the weather here has been very um, dodgy. Now, of course, we are here in the midst of the summer. That doesn't mean the world has exactly ground to halt. And uh, as we've discussed in the past couple of shows, um, uh, there are some things going on. I just thought I'd pick up on a couple of them. Uh, and 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 the first has to do with Hong Kong, because we're now in week number 11, I guess, of protests. This weekend, we had 1.7 million people in a peaceful protest, which represents 22% of the population of Hong Kong, which represents you know, the equivalent of a US demonstration of 70 million people, uh, to give you a sense of the size. Um, and yet, um, we it was peaceful. There was no no real escalation. And so I guess the first question, let me pose it to you, Corey. And this is a bit of a contrarian question because I really fear, as I think anybody does, the Chinese 
losing their patience and going in and doing something very disturbing. Um, but, but it dawned on me, or it crossed my mind at any event, that perhaps the Chinese are managing this well. Um, and by that, I mean the following, thus far, of course, but by that, I mean the following. Um, they've uh, tried to uh, influence opinion using social media. They've even had Chinese rock stars come out in favor of the Chinese government. That may sound to everybody like propaganda, but they're trying to win an information war. Uh, and instead of sending troops into the middle of Hong Kong, they amassed troops in Shenzhen where everybody could see the troops. And all right. of a sudden, news stories would run saying there are troops across the border in Shenzhen, and, and they have been for some time. And so on. And so, I, I, again, Chinese is a repressive regime. The Chinese are doing terrible people to the, with, uh, to their people within their border. I worry that the Chinese will not handle this well. But thus far, it does seem like they're using all means short of the worst means to try to manage them. I think that's right, David. Yeah, I agree with that description. Um, I have spent most of August... Uh, engaged in groups thinking about China and what China's behavior means for the United States. And a couple of things came out strongly to me. First, most of the business people in the conversations I was in believed that we may already have seen peak China and that uh, you know, we in the national security community were, and in America, in democratic politics all over the world, right? We're, we're slow on the uptake, but durable once we've got hold of a problem, which is, you know, the political science behind the nature of democratic commitment to allies and war efforts very strongly supports that view. Um, what the China hands were saying was, uh, you know, we think China is taking great strides uh, towards being a dominant world power, and the economics may not underwrite that. And so you national security people might be worried about the wrong problem, which is uh, perhaps we should be more worried about a faltering China and what, how an unconfident faltering China is going to behave. So that was the first important thing to think about. Uh, applying that to uh, the decision in Hong Kong is that the second thing I learned is that most China hands believe the Chinese can't take much more of this, that the note that they are obsessed with color revolutions as the Russian authoritarian government is obsessed with color revolutions. And so, you know, sooner or later, they will have to put this down. Um, and, and actually, you know, President Trump, who is no friend of democracy movements anywhere, including in our own country, uh, yeah. has, has begun to get the message and is starting to say things about the price China will pay if it does that. He's linked it to a trade deal. He's linked it to international reaction. And that's a good thing, right? Half-hearted, slow on the uptake, but better than one might anticipate of this president and the people around him. So the third interesting thing is that um, 
that those protesters in Hong Kong, and my heart just bursts with admiration for them. As the protests were, as protesters were getting more frustrated and the police were getting more repressive and the Chinese government was associating itself with gangs to try and provoke violence on the part of the protesters, a very small minority of protesters gave into that. And then they, a movement without a leader, understood how damaging that is to them that they need to win, as you suggested, David, they need to win the information war and the Chinese were playing a government, the Chinese Communist Party was playing a pretty good game and they needed to improve theirs. And so the number of people on the streets in the last few days, there, probably all of you saw that video of the protesters parting to let a fire truck through. Um, I don't think China wins this information war because the protesters in Hong Kong also understand they are fighting an information war and free people are much more adaptive. They're much more experimental than authoritarian regimes can be. And I think that will ultimately be the success of people of Hong Kong. And, and my hat is off to them. We should all learn how to handle information wars by studying those young people of Hong Kong. Well, and, you know, it, it's a fascinating point. And I have to say, it's not, I, I didn't sort of really think of the conversation heading in this direction. But, you know, as they say on the Internet, I'm old enough to remember when people power revolutions actually had a positive outcome. Uh, right. And in the in the years at the end of the 1980s, whether it was in the Philippines or whether it was in Central and Eastern Europe, you saw big demonstrations leading to changes in government. But we haven't seen that in a long time. We didn't see that in the Green Revolution in Iran. We didn't see that uh, in in terms of a positive outcome to what happened in Tahrir Square. Government fell, but the one that replaced it. Um, uh, ultimately was uh, not necessarily an improvement. Um, and uh, so far we haven't seen that outcome in China or in Venezuela or in Russia. Um, and so, you know, getting a lot of people on the street is one thing, but Corey touched upon one specific point, which is a revolution with or a, a movement without a leader tends to be these movements without a leader, without a very specific agenda or purpose, um, produce big outpourings of public feeling and not much change. At least that's my observation. What do you think, Ed? Um, well, I'm, I'm tempted to say that re that remains to be seen. I mean, one, one point to add to Corey's very good, very good summary of how well the Hong Kong protesters have played this information game is that they have avoided thus far being drawn into the Hong Kong independence language um, because that's that's a real red line for China. Um, and, and in fact, I've got a sort of per personal professional sort of angle on this because a colleague of mine, uh, Victor Mallet, who was uh, it, it based in Hong Kong for us um, last year, had his visa removed um, uh, he was basically kicked out of Hong Kong, um, uh, even though he's based there for the FT, um, because he 
moderated a panel discussion about Hong Kong independence at the uh, Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong. And, and so that's a really neuralgic issue um, for the Chinese, and the protesters have been very disciplined in not allowing the more radical um, amongst them, the Hong Kong independence people, to predominate. Um, that said, I think China probably would have found it easier to intervene um, you know, if they had. So what, which China would prefer um, you know, is an interesting question. Do they want more of a, a cause to intervene and, and have popular support in China for doing so? Um, or would they, or do they prefer it the way it's going, which is the protesters are saying that we want our rights as Chinese, and they keep using the word Chinese. Um, I don't know where it ends. Um, uh, I continue to think the Chinese are in an extremely, extremely difficult position. Xi Jinping's got uh, a very, very hard decision to make, because if this continues... Um, and you get these kinds of numbers, very disciplined, very smart, um, large-scale demonstrations, then it is an open rebuke to China's power and to China's position, um, you know, which will damage Xi's reputation internally um, in many ways uh, the longer it goes on. Uh, I think they've been betting on fatigue. We're now at 11 weeks. The previous set of demonstrations five years ago, the umbrella movement was 11 weeks long. I think, as Corey probably said last week when we were discussing this, they're hoping that pressuring big employers in Hong Kong like Cathay Pacific and Jardine Matheson and others to discipline their employees might have an impact. But if none of that works, it's going to be increasingly hard for Xi Jinping not to intervene in some way. I don't think it'll be through the PLA. I think it'll be through the People's Armed Police, which is a military police distinction without much difference. Um, you know, I doubt they will be. I doubt they will be given license to sort of mow mow protesters down with machine guns. Um, uh, but on the other hand, if they're just given license to do normal policing, then wouldn't the wouldn't the presence of the People's Armed Police or the PLA actually increase the demonstrations? And so. You know, you then have to think one step beyond that. Well, then, you, then, then, then she's power. Then she's bluff has really been called. And then, do they start thinking about using real bullets? So there's no, there's no really good options um, here for China. And uh, you know, I just stand in awe and and um, admiration of of these demonstrators, these demonstrators, both their courage and their tactical nous. It's a very, very interesting situation. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, another component of it is, you know, what's the short term and what's the long term and what's the ultimate, you know, game here? Um, uh, I thought back, in, you know, before Hong Kong was handed over in the 90s, that Hong Kong might end up being a bit of like a, a Trojan horse, you know, a Chinese assume it in, but they underestimate the degree to which Hong Kong will change China more than China changes Hong Kong. I love uh, that simile. Uh, well, thank you. Um, uh, it is actually made in, in one respect, at least, a, a little more likely, maybe two respects, because Hong Kong is now part of a Chinese plan to create 
effectively the largest city in the world because Hong Kong to Shenzhen to Guangzhou to Macau, the Pearl River Delta, becomes a city of 60, 70 million people effectively building a bridge to Macau, all the infrastructure that connects it. It will become the largest urban area there. And the part of that area that has the most intense political culture is Hong Kong. And whether this goes 11 weeks or 111 weeks, over the long term, there's going to be a lot of intercourse between the various parts of that city, and that can have an effect. And of course, information wars go two ways. People in China who are unhappy or worried or see perhaps, as Corey said, the, the country faltering, look and say, gee, what about this? What about what's going on in Hong Kong? And it may not produce a change right now. It may produce change in a couple of years. So, Corey, let's look at it from that perspective. Did that come up in your conversation? It's a really interesting point, David. I went to Taiwan with a group of uh, fellow travelers who had also sailed on the pirate ship McCain in 2008. We took a trip and it was probably 2009 or 10 to Taiwan. And I remember I'd, I'd not been there before. As you all know, I'm not a China expert. I was really struck at the confidence of Taiwanese politicians and civic leaders that unification with the mainland would happen someday, and it would happen because the mainland became like Taiwan. And, and that's the parallel, I think, to the one you're drawing about Hong Kong. And I think that's true, provided others are willing to protect Hong Kong and Taiwan from China, or at least deter China, deter the Communist Party of China that is running the mainland, that the price they will pay if they, if they crush the aspiration for a different future in Hong Kong and uh, cast a shadow over Taiwan, they, that the price will be unacceptably high. I am not sure, uh, I haven't heard a consensus among China experts that anybody knows where that price point is. Right. Some people saying any day now they're going to have to go into Hong Kong because they can't possibly stand it. And by the way, uh, they're going to invade Taiwan because they 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 will understand that crushing Hong Kong means that they can't expect reunification with Taiwan. What I notice again, I'm not a China expert, but watching Chinese behavior in confrontations with the United States uh, makes me skeptical of that domino theory, because what the pattern I believe I see in Chinese government behavior is that the military has authorization to be extraordinarily reckless, and the political leadership is willing to deny that they have any knowledge or understanding. Remember when Bob Gates went to Beijing and they checked they tested that new Chinese fighter that was very clearly stolen off of contractor information about American fighter planes. And they tested it when Bob Gates was there. Gates says in his memoir that he raised the issue with the Chinese political leadership and they claimed to know nothing about it. 
which I can't imagine is true, right? People don't take initiative that way in risky choices in authoritarian governments. But it's in the Chinese government's interest to pretend that they have uh, had no idea that, you know, there was gambling going on in Casablanca. Um, where I think it has the possibility to snap back on the Chinese government is that it looks to me like when confronted, the Chinese government is actually quite risk averse. So they have a salami slice tactic of promising President Obama in the Rose Garden that they won't militarize the islands they're building in the South China Sea. And then they militarize the islands. And when we confront them about it, they say, uh, what? We had no idea. And then if we continue, if we persist in pushing them on it, they will walk it back because the Chinese government is self-aware enough to know if they provoke a war with the United States, they'd lose it. The only way in which they win it is if the Chinese government can persuade the United States not to fight. And the behavior that they are exhibiting in Hong Kong right now um, makes that outcome less likely than other ways they could be handling the politics of it. So I think the political leadership when confronted is actually pretty risk averse. And that argues that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be intimidated by their choices, but we ought to understand that the right lesson from Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian Wars isn't Graham Allison's notion that the dominant power will choose a war in order to prevent the rise of smaller power. It's that the dominant power declining to carry out its alliance obligations is way too tempting for the rising power to resist. That's how war starts. You know, Corey, I am taking my one week of summer vacation in, in about two weeks, and mm -hmm. I'm going to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Very and good! Say, and I'm going to say, Corey, Shockey was right. <laughs> I thank you for that. I thank you very much. And I'm very glad to hear that you are doing uh, Thucydides' geography of the Peloponnesian Wars, not the last seven years that Xenophon describes, or worse yet, the Anabasis, Xenophon's description of the invasion of Persia, because those are way less fun than what you've chosen, David. So congratulations. Um, well, thanks. And, and I, I didn't really even know that I, I was being that smart about those things. Um, but but I'm, I'm glad I am. Um, Ed, let's just shift the subject a little way. I was thinking of what Corey was saying, and it was all very thoughtful, of course. And I, I, I really... <laughs> but... I, but... No, no, there's no but. I actually... I, 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 I personally think the, the sort of genius of the Chinese leadership is not long-term vision, which is overstated or, um, uh, you know, some secret formula. Um, you know, China was the largest economy in the world from the beginning of time until the year 1835. Um, the Industrial Revolution set them back a bit, but they're, you know, regaining their footing. They're going to be the largest economy in the world um, for a lot of reasons. But what they're really good at is 
avoiding hard landings so far, but for like 30 years. People constantly will say, this is it, peak China, this is the end, whatever. And then they find a way to step back a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, in in case like this, even after Tiananmen, to be honest, they managed it. They're good at that. Um, usually in the recent past, they've had the pressure of the U.S. I don't think there's any chance they're going to have a lot of pressure from the U.S., even if, you know, Mike Pence seems to be saying some tough things about China and that they better behave themselves. Um, because Donald Trump has a world vision that focuses on Trump, Trump, and Trump. There's only, you know, all he cares about is himself and his future. And I believe that he thinks that the central issue in his future is getting reelected or he's going to end up in the slammer. And getting reelected depends on having the economy not in dire shape during an election year. And frankly, he can't go and dip into the tools of managing a recession um, uh, that we usually dip into because he's blown his wad with the tax increase and government spending is is you know going crazy and we're going to hit a trillion dollar uh, annual deficit, twenty two twenty three trillion dollar national debt, and um, you know the Fed can do a little but it can't do a lot. Uh, and, and really, his only play is to try to figure out some way to solve the problem with China. So the Chinese government on trade has a huge amount of leverage over Trump uh, because he it's he doesn't care about trade. He cares about Trump. And if 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 he can get even a short term face saving deal, and I don't think he could get more than that, it could save his bacon. Um, and I, I was looking at the front page of this pink newspaper that I read periodically uh, uh, although I don't actually get newspapers, I was, it's a pink website. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's and, salmon, but even the digital version is salmon colored. Salmon colored. Salmon colored, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scottish yeah. salmon, no doubt. But but um, and and uh, I, you know, the the lead story today, the day we're recording this, is you know Germany's in recession. China's, I think, had the worst year in sixteen, seventeen years. Um, uh, Trump needs the Chinese more than the Chinese need Trump right now, right? Ed? I, I think so. I mean, uh, and that's leverage the Chinese, I think, are prepared to use. They, they believe they can take the pain of a trade war um, better than Trump in the build-up to an election. And they're probably right. They can probably call his bluff, but they can probably do so in a way in which he can present it as a Chinese climb down to his own people. Um, uh, that said, you know, if I were, you know, doing um, cost-benefit, longer-term sort of futurology analysis for the Chinese, um, I would I would be looking at a longer-term decoupling of the China-U.S. economy, because Trump, if he's re-elected, is going to come back to this theme, and if he's replaced by a Democrat, a lot of them are thinking along the same lines. They they deplore Trump's methods, but they don't necessarily dispute his aim, and a lot of companies, global multinationals, are beginning to break up their supply chains um, as a hedge against um, this longer-term decoupling between the Chinese and the U.S. economies. And um, so if I was sort of thinking longer-term, and I was sitting in Beijing and advising Xi Jinping, I would be basing a lot of my strategy on that, and that would involve actually accelerating what Trump wants to stop, 
which is, you know, the indigenization of Chinese technology, um, particularly semiconductors, particularly the kinds of things that Huawei uh, now relies on American um, companies to supply it. Um, I would be I would be stepping up the research and development um, um, activity to make sure in future that comes from China. I'd also be looking at um, using China's monopoly on various rare earth minerals that are critical for the tech industry and for companies like Apple of using that as leverage and many other things, um, all of which suggests that the chances of um, the chances of um, some kind of conflict are, I think, higher than, than they otherwise might be because economic decoupling makes the price you pay for uh, military um, being more military aggressive seem to be lower, even though, of course, it isn't. There's, there's, no, there's no higher price I can think of than a U.S.-China war. I mean, I should mention that um, in a very fanciful way, when, when I wrote my book on uh, the retreat of Western liberalism that you so kindly showcased in one of your podcasts, David, um, two, two years ago or so. No, no, and um, I, read, I, read, I read chapters to myself every night before I go. <laughs> it's there next year, Twilight. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> um, but I won't develop that line of thought. Uh, the, I have a scenario in there, not a prediction, but a scenario in there that <clears throat> that the Taiwanese presidential election um, in January 2020 leads to a far more pro-independent stance. China starts uh, militarily encircling um, and threatening and bombarding the Taiwanese. The um, U.S. Seventh Fleet gets in the way and um, one of their ships is sunk. And this is a very fanciful scenario, but it's it's meant to illustrate the kind of unpredictability you have um, with a Trump administration in terms of um, high-stakes foreign policy situations. And um, before this turns into full-blown war, Vladimir Putin earns himself a Nobel Peace Prize by persuading the two countries to stand down and China to, um, to keep off Taiwan. Um, I don't think this is going to happen, I must underline, but I don't think this kind of scenario is nearly as implausible as I might have thought when I was uh, dreaming it up two years ago. Well, you know, the chapter in your book that I like the best, Ed, and I'd like to talk to Corey about this, is the one in which you predict the United States buys Greenland. Now, how is it? <laughs> that was just genius prescience on my part, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just before the chapter on where it buys Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is a bit, a bit more I think, expensive. I think that one may go the other way. But in any event, um, <laughs> you know, the president, Corey, uh, just today has doubled down on his statement that buying Greenland is something he's seriously looking Sweet at. Sweet Jesus. Now, you know, I... I say this, you know, knowing that the Danes, who actually control Greenland, um, uh, own it, uh, uh, have made this into, you know, the punchline of the week. David, have you seen anywhere, like, a reasonable rationale for why? Well, What's this the is argument the, for this? Now, I, I have to tell you. This is what I was about to ask you. But, but you know, the, <laughs> I, I, the, here are the rationales that I've heard. A, um, Greenland has a lot of minerals. 
And a lot of the kind of mining and exploit the earth types around Trump have been whispering in his ear. B, Trump, somebody near Trump has said to him, the future is competition for the Arctic. The oil is in the <laughs> Arctic. And that we need to have a outpost on the Arctic. Now, they may not have mentioned it, but we actually do have an Air Force base in Greenland. David, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I have to tell you the visual I cannot get out of my mind um, is, let me talk to you about the future, son. Plastics. Yeah, plastic. <laughs> exactly. It's Greenland. <laughs> Thirdly, I, and I, this is my own personal theory, because the other two are sort of grounded in some kind of crude Seward's folly kind of geopolitics, um, that is that Trump's watching the news and, and the ice is melting in Greenland and he's going, I could build a casino you know, so, that when the ice goes, you could use that land for something. And, and, you know, that he, he sees the destruction of the global environment as an opportunity to cash in on. I mean, that's really his environmental okay. policy. Okay. So David, as usual, you are just a starry eyed optimist Naive in the extreme, I hand you my tiara of optimism because the notion that the president could make the cognitive leap, even in a self-interested business context of global warming means Greenland actually isn't going to be covered with ice and therefore we should invest now, um, is just wildly wildly optimistic. I wouldn't make that jump, is what I'm saying. Well, you know, on John Oliver last night, I should say, uh, he said, you know, Greenland is icy, distant, and semi-autonomous. It's exactly Trump's type. Which was <laughs> <laughs> Did your daughter write that? No, she didn't. <laughs> I hope so, because that's fabulous. <laughs> okay, so the only... Um, strategic argument I can see for the purchase of Greenland would be that if you believe the Russian submarine fleet, in particular their nuclear submarine fleet, poses an increased threat to the United States, uh, what back in the good old Cold War days we used to call the GIUK gap, which is Greenland, Iceland, and the United Kingdom. If you can pin Russian submarines inside the Baltic Sea before the GI-UK gap, before they get out to the open Atlantic Ocean, it's much easier to restrain them. You can track them then subsequently. So there's a good solid strategic argument. Uh, if you think, and here's where it would require a cognitive leap the president's not capable of, if you think that despite 75 years of history, the government of Denmark is not going to cooperate with us to protect all of us against the Russian nuclear threat, which the government of Denmark has never once failed to do, um, or you think that we're doing such damage to our alliance relationships that no ally would be reliable, therefore we need to physically control this territory. But, but that, again, that's the exact kind of leap to uh, rational self-interest that I just uh, was derisory about 
when you made it on the climate change argument. So I'm not going to make it. My guess is that this is, you know, one more rabbit the president pulled out of his hat that he was hoping would distract us from serious negative coverage about the disgraceful behavior of his administration. <laughs> Not thinking that some of us might think it was some of the disgraceful behavior of his administration <laughs> right. to go in pursuit of, of, of loony, loony uh, uh, initiatives like this. Ed, do you have any insights into this Greenland um, matter? Well, colleagues of mine, EFT uh, Alphaville, um, um, valued Greenland at $1.1 trillion and, and recommended it as a buy. Um, so I, I, suspect, um, I suspect that's the kind of number that might, that might put Trump off. Um, By I'm the way, that's that fabulous. He... Well done, Alphaville. <laughs> yeah, that was a, it was a, it was a clever note. Um, <laughs> it's a, it, it's he, a good um, idea. You know, that was happens to be the, 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 the uh, amount of the Republican tax cut. And if Trump had come to us and said we could have this tax cut for the 1% or we could buy Greenland, at least we would have been a choice. I, and unlike I would, the tax cuts, Greenland would have been self-funding because as you've implied <laughs> right. with, your, with your mineral resources, I forgot to object to David's description of the purchase of Alaska as Seward's folly. I, for one, am very grateful it is no longer Russian territory. Uh, well, I, 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 I was just using a phrase that was floating around back in the day. Um, uh, clearly, it's to our benefit to have uh, all that Alaska offers us and to have a place to put Sarah Palin that's that far away. <laughs> she, could, she could see Russia from our house. <laughs> from Greenland too, if we to Greenland. Um, the um, you know, as you know, the the American Virgin Islands was the Danish Caribbean, and um, and the United States bought at the beginning of the First World War bought bought it off Denmark twenty five million dollars, and Truman did try and buy Greenland at the beginning of the Cold War um, from Denmark. So I mean, on the on the upside, Trump has precedent here for purchases of territory. Um, and, you know, at least he's not annexing Greenland. Um, uh, you know, he's trying to do this on the open market. Uh, I don't think anything more is going to come from this. Um, but I do think it's an amusing insight into Trump's um, pretty much insane uh, mental workings. Yeah, pretty much insane. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much insane. I mean, you know, in every respect. But he is going to Denmark. You know, it's going to be... You know, he's going to be there in two weeks, and surely uh, this is going to come up. He's he said he's going to bring it up to them. So maybe you'll have a number. Maybe you'll actually have an envelope with a number on the back of it. I I, I, can't, I can't wait. I, I, this is fantastic. Maybe he thinks he can buy Greenland and then put it together with the pieces that are falling off of the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> so the encirclement of England will be complete. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem to be going very well for you. I don't I don't mean to pick on you every time you're here, Ed. But 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 I have to say every week, every day, 
that you get closer to Brexit, somebody says or does something stupider in your government. I mean, it, 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 is this a how's that working out for you question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the latest right. development seems to be this sort of willingness of the uh, uh, government in in the UK to accept the hard border as of the day of Brexit. Indeed, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, um, who is a, a, a hardliner with an unpleasant tinge, um, um, is insisting border posts be put up on November the 1st. Um, and, you know, whether this is all part of a mind game by the uh, by Boris Johnson's government to um, demonstrate to the Europeans, look, we actually mean this. We are prepared to mutilate ourselves um, and thereby risk you, you losing a little finger and think that that kind of asymmetric risk scenario is going to scare the Europeans. Um, I don't know. I, I also think, though, um, that even without that sort of um, bargaining bluff element to it, there is a desire politically to to do the Thelma and Louise, as I've described it in the past, and take Britain over the cliff, because any other scenario will mean that uh, Nigel Farage's party, the Brexit party, steals seats from the Conservatives. Um, and so there is a sort of political logic driving Britain towards suicide. Um, and the other thing you mentioned, Operation Yellowhammer is what's it, what it's called, and it's the British Civil Services um, scenarios for a no-deal Brexit, and they involve rationing, they involve shortages, they involve energy um, um, shortages, food shortages, medicine shortages, um, uh, all kinds of situations where you begin to worry about whether civil order can be upheld, um, and all within days of, of, a, of a hard no-deal Brexit. Um, so... I am more worried. I am more worried about the British situation in, you know, Greenland's future independence at the moment. Yeah. Well, we're, you know, we're worried uh, too for you as as a, 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 a citizen of 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 the UK, but but also you know, Corey's there, and Corey, um, you know, this could <laughs> be the end of the Treaty of Union of 1707. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you've seen the movie The Favourite uh, about Queen Anne. <laughs> and, and everything's going to go back to then. And there's going to be like rabbits everywhere. And, <laughs> and the Queen crying and naming the, all of them. Yeah. Just like in the movie. Yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot of devastatingly children. attractive women vying for power. Um, I think it's going to be way worse than The Favourite. Well, the interesting thing, of course, is that Olivia Colman, who played Queen Anne, now is playing in the new season of The Crown, Queen Elizabeth. Fabulous. So, you know, we do have this kind of circularity here to to, to connecting then and now of British history all through Olivia Colman. Um, so I, um, I have to confess, much as I love living in London, and much as I love our British allies, I found the entire subject of Brexit just boring. The <laughs> fundamental choices haven't changed. That, David, you are exactly right. 
they are for narrow partisan advantage, mistakenly in my judgment, uh, assessing narrowly partisan advantage and taking the country over a cliff that actually could end up with a separation of England from Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And so you really will have a little England that will be the destruction of the dynamism of the country's economy that I, like uh, I'm, I'm squarely in the camp that thinks for crying out loud, there, there won't be a bigger self-inflicted wound that a sensible country has inflicted upon itself. It's actually given me at a time in which our country is also elected a maniac for president and behaving that we are giving sale to reckless adolescent boy behavior in our government. I at least am consoled that in the United States, you know, the founding fathers built a government, geniuses built a government capable of being run by idiots. And so the balance of competing powers, the fact that people can sue the government, that the Congress can choose to force information out of the government and constrain its hands. I mean, as the Trump administration is saying, we'll give a special advantage to a post-Brexit Britain. The Speaker of the House is saying nothing's getting through here that damages Ireland or Northern Ireland. Um, that that the great golden state of California can set emission standards so much higher than the federal government, that all of the many ways in which the founding fathers designed a system that the Lilliputians of the public can harness down the gulliver of the federal state, I am so profoundly grateful for. Well, um, I think, unfortunately, we've run out of time and we're going to have to end on that point. It's a good synopsis. Perhaps what we what you describe as happening in, in to the UK will happen. Uh, who knows? Maybe even some European countries will donate some vowels to the Welsh and we might actually be able to understand what they have to say. Um, since, you know, I, I, I don't understand how that country could be integrated into the rest of Europe. Uh, given the, you know, the nature of the Welsh la Welsh language, I I find it you know street signs in Wales very difficult to deal with, um, but uh, we uh, we will. You, know. you mean you need to mention to, uh, to Corey? I understand why you find this boring. You know, it's a bit like listening to Mahler or Brahms. It's like boring, boring. I should be listening. I've got to pay attention. And then, and then suddenly a crescendo comes along which really sweeps you away. And I think that crescendo is going to be quite clear. I think you're going to regret the days when it was boring. Pine for them. Um, I, I believe you are right. That is that October 31st is a crescendo and closing banks and a split up of the union and all sorts of other things, which were fundamental elements of the problem from the inception that these two British governments, three British governments, haven't felt the need to address um, that, yes, it's building to a crescendo. Yes, that's going to be horrible. But I am not going to regret not learning the ins and outs of this solipsistic British conversation.
Fair well, enough. there'll be more of it to come, uh, but uh, we'll tr we'll try to leaven the conversation with other uh, kinds of uh, insights for you, uh, Corey. Um, Ed and Corey, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Deep State Radio, and thanks to all of you out there in Deep State land. Uh, who are joining us, the new members that we've had. We've had a boost of new members uh, recently, and uh, and we've got a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, podcasts in addition to the traditional DSR podcast. We've done several uh, National Security Magazine podcasts recently, including last week, Jake, Clapper, uh, Jake Sullivan and General uh, uh, Clapper, uh, uh, former uh, director of the Office of National Intelligence. Retired uh, that, General Jim Clapper. Yes, yep. retired General. Yes, uh, to, to use your, uh, um, I, I know how sensitive you are to that issue, but yes, retired I General am. Clapper. Uh, and this week on, on National Security Magazine, we have a uh, 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 couple more conversations like that coming up, one with Michelle Flournoy. A uh, uh, former senior defense official, and one with Mike Morrell, a former senior CIA official. So we hope you'll join us for those as well. And also the next episodes of Deep State Radio, you find it all at the DSRnetwork.com, and you'll find the opportunity to uh, click on membership and find one of the many very inexpensive options for supporting this undertaking by becoming a member. So that's a good thing to do with the last days of your summer. And uh, we hope you'll do it, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.